Let's return to Acts chapter 19. We've heard the first half of our text. We'll read through the rest of this chapter towards the end of the message. The Apostle John, in his first letter to the church, in his latter years, wrote, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He says, you have overcome them. He's speaking of the false prophets with their false spirits who oppose the truth of Christ, representing this world spirit of Antichrist. You have overcome them, he says. You are winning. We just sang of that. In Christ, we have overcome. And how are we winning? John gives the reason. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This reality will carry you through the challenges of living the Christian life in a world that is opposed to the ways of God. Our faith that God is greater is the fuel for kingdom advance. When we believe God is greater, then we step out as servants of the king to do whatever he asks us to do. We're not wringing our hands wondering if this will work, if this is really going to end well. We have this confidence God is greater. His ways will prevail. The church will be built. The gates of hell cannot withstand its advance. Now, when we come to Acts chapter 19, we have a series of stories, events that unfold for us. And in them, we see God making his greatness known specifically through his son in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we have multiple mentions of the Lord Jesus or the Lord in these different stories, which are helping us see that in them all, we're seeing that God is greater the power of God in Jesus Christ is greater than anything we face in adversity, living this Christian life. So in verse 5, we see they're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In verse 13, some try to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. In verse 15, the evil spirits say, I know that name. I know Jesus, but I don't know you. Verse 17, fear falls upon the believers and the name of the Lord Jesus is extolled. Verse 20, it's the word of the Lord, the Lordship of Jesus that is increasing and prevailing mightily. Our theme is simple. The name of the Lord Jesus is the power for kingdom advance. We must believe this morning God's word to us that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Because we live right on, right on uh, the, the edge of unbelief on this matter of Jesus is greater than the God of this world. We see what's going on in the world around us and we start stewing and we kind of have some eschatological hope some ultimate hope that things will work out somehow. But right now, our faith is pretty weak at times in thinking that really God right now is greater than everything going on in the world. 
zoom in on just our nation and things look so bad in what we see going on around us. You know, the, the elections did not go well the other day. Uh, pro-life lost on every front. And we can easily say, what's the use? Our culture's going downhill. We're not going to win these battles. But we must come back to the faith that Acts 19 is demonstrating for us, that John wrote specifically for us, that the God through his son Jesus and by his spirit who is in us is greater than everything going on in this world around us. The name of the Lord Jesus, the triumphant name and the person and work it represents, this is the power for kingdom advance. As we study this text and look at these couple of paragraphs, I want us to rem remember that Luke has already laid the foundation for this very truth. It was back in chapter 4 when he said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. The power for salvation, the power for the kingdom rests in this name of Jesus. His name is our battle cry. His name is the banner under which we fight. We go this week from this rallying moment, this gathering of the church, but we go out into the world. But remember, we're fighting under the banner of the name of our God. Joshua learned this lesson when he was an understudy for Moses. Moses is up on the mountain, and when his hands were raised, the Israelites would overcome the Amalekites down in the valley. But when he got tired and put his hands down, the Amalekites would beat up on the Israelites. And so a couple of men helped him hold up his arms. But down on the battlefield, it was Joshua fighting the battle. And at the end of that battle, God tells Moses, rehearse in the ears of Joshua this name, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is our banner. Christian, maybe you need some encouragement this morning that God is greater than the adversity in your workplace. God is greater than the adversity of our culture. God is greater than the table of politics seeming to slant in favor of all things ungodly. God is greater than the God of this world. I want us to see this power of God in Jesus' name on display in Acts chapter 19. Now, you'll have a statement on your notes that kind of captures each of these paragraphs. But then what's not on your notes is a little summary that I'll give of how God is greater. And maybe between one of these two ideas, something will, will click for you so that you will anchor yourself to this truth this morning that the power of Jesus' name is what fuels and motivates kingdom advance. Let's see this power in action in these multiple contexts, beginning first in verses 1 to 7. Paul encounters these disciples. Verse 1, he asks them if they received the Holy Spirit when they believed. So, Based on Luke's summary of disciples, Paul's question about their believing, 
I'm going to argue that, that these are Christians, but immature in their understanding of, of what has taken place in the, the commission that Jesus has given his disciples. Because when they're asked, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Their answer is no. Not only did they not receive the Spirit, they don't even know what Paul's talking about. They haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. So Paul asks them, well, what was your baptism? They must have said something about baptism. And they said, we were baptized into John's baptism. And Paul explains that for us in case we aren't real clear on remembering what we saw in the gospel accounts. He says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Number one, the name of of Jesus is the power for discipleship based on the truth. The name of Jesus is the power for discipleship based on the truth. These disciples didn't understand the full gospel nature of baptism into Jesus. The last song we sang is all about the New Testament teaching of what it means to be in Christ, to to be immersed or baptized into the life of Christ. You see, the baptism of John was this baptism of repentance in preparation for the coming Messiah, for that coming righteousness of God, for what Jesus was going to do for us. These men didn't understand the baptism of the new covenant of the Great Commission. It was for those who believed in what Jesus had already done. This was the baptism that served as the exclamation point of the gospel. By faith, I enter into the life of Christ. His righteous life counts for me so that I can stand righteous before God. His atoning death counts for me. I've entered into that. His resurrection counts for me. I've entered into that. So the baptism into the name of Jesus is the recognition by faith of all that he is, all that he does for sinners. The disciples' life is immersed into the life of Christ. And so they were baptized that way. Not just in this recognition of the need for righteousness, it's the baptism of repentance of John, but now the recognition of what Jesus has done, and they are in him immersed wholly into his life, death, and resurrection. So that as Romans 6 says, even as we are dead with Christ and buried with him, so also we are raised with him to walk in newness of life. Like the story of Apollos in the last chapter, this story of these uninformed or immature disciples teaches us an important lesson. Namely, that the name of Jesus is greater than our imperfect faith. The name of Jesus is greater than our imperfect faith. We gather here this morning and there's a lot of spiritual maturity, there's a lot of growth, there's a lot of stability. But even amongst the stable, there are moments of shakiness and there are some who are new to the faith. 
still kind of wrapping their minds around all the teaching of the Bible. The good news from our text is that the name of Jesus and the power it represents is greater than any understanding we might have of Scripture. Our faith is in Christ. He is our rock. Our great stability is not because my mind can process and logic and come to strong conclusions. No, my stability and strength is just a a, a microscopic mustard seed of faith in the rock of Christ. Oh, listen, we're, we're to grow and we're to come to better understand the scriptures But what we need to remember and be encouraged by is that even in our immature following of Jesus, even in our stumbling down the path of discipleship, the good news is the name of Jesus is greater than our imperfect faith. So they're baptized and they experience this mini Pentecost movement. We saw it in Acts chapter 2 as the Spirit is poured out and they hear the speaking in languages. We saw it again in Acts chapter 8 as the gospel spread to Samaria, and those who received the Holy Spirit there also spoke in languages. And Acts chapter 10, it happened with Cornelius and the Gentiles there. And now we're seeing it again uh, further away up in Asia in Ephesus. God confirming this great, revelation of the gospel, not only for Jews, but for Gentiles, and the promise of the coming Holy Spirit uh, poured out on those who believe. The name of Jesus and the power of that name is greater than our imperfect faith. There is faith, though. It says these were disciples who had believed, and they're baptized in the name of Jesus, as they hear the full picture of what that baptism could represent. So make no mistake, you must believe. What we're not saying is that uh, just saying that you go to church or naming the name of Jesus will, will take care of everything for you. You must believe in what he has done for you. You must believe that he has done for you what you could not do for yourself. And that's keep God's law and pay for your sin, and live with him forevermore. You must believe. You need to put your faith in Jesus to be rescued from sin, and then you need to be baptized. But from that point on, in those moments of weak faith or lack of knowledge or understanding, we keep resting in the fullness of Jesus Christ. So take heart. Brothers and sisters, you may not know all the answers to the questions people will ask you about your faith. You may not know everything there is to know about the Christian life. But your simple faith in the power of Jesus' name will make you a useful tool in kingdom advance. This is true for our friendships. This is true for our parenting. This is true for new believers that we would seek to grow in the faith. God wants to use you this week in your imperfect faith, in your imperfect following to advance the kingdom. It's not wait till you're everything you should be. That's called dead and off to heaven. 
Right now, God wants to use you. And right now, with your fear and your concern and your timidity, he wants to use you. So this week, speak of the Lord, live a godly life, and as that opens the door to speak more specifically about Jesus and his rescuing power, then do so. And when the questions are asked and you don't know what to say, tell them you'll go to the Word and try to show them from the Word what the answer is. God is greater than our imperfect following of Jesus. Well, Paul moves on from those 12 men who needed that special ministry of discipleship. He enters the synagogue, verses 8 through 10, speaking boldly. Verse 9, but when some became stubborn or hardened, committed to rejecting the truth, and they continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that way of following Jesus Christ. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Number two, the name of Jesus is the power for boldness in the face of unbelief. Some of you have witnessed to unbelievers, sometimes frequently or repetitively, even the same ones, family or friends or co-workers. The great hope that we can be bold and consistent in doing that is remembering we are doing it in the name of Jesus. We're not doing this to make a name for ourselves. We're not doing this to, to make Grace Bible Church a, a bigger congregation. We're doing this in the name of Jesus. And sometimes you may not like it. You, you may not want to speak up. You may not want to cause conflict or tension. Out of love for God and for others, we stand boldly and we proclaim what is true, remembering that that banner waves over us. The Lord is my banner. I go in the name of Jesus to make him known. Some became stubborn. They continued in their unbelief. Maybe you know someone who not only has no interest in your Christian faith, but is also stubbornly opposed to hearing any more about it. Maybe you've had somebody tell you, I don't, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Don't bring this up. If you're coming for Thanksgiving, we don't want to hear about Christianity, the Bible, or Jesus. Just know from this passage in the Bible that that is the reality we will face, a hardening and a stubborn resistance to hearing any more about Jesus. What we see in the text is Paul is bold to reason and persuade, and then Paul is bold to move on and preach elsewhere. And the end result of that kind of boldness to stand there and keep speaking or to move on and keep speaking, the end result was, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Apparently, he kept meeting resistance after a period of teaching, and then he'd move on, and he'd teach others, and they would come and hear him, and 
Luke concludes, everyone in Asia heard of Jesus. And that's the conclusion of a paragraph that really seems to focus on some stubborn, resistant people wanted nothing to do with this. We would think the conclusion of that paragraph would be, and, and it just seemed like nobody heard the word. Because that's how we feel at times. We share the word or we've tried or we're with those people that we know don't want to hear any more about it and we feel like this isn't working. This paragraph says they became stubborn and continued in unbelief, dot, 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 and they all heard the word of the Lord. By this paragraph, what is success in sharing what is true? The success is simply in that language All the residents heard the word of the Lord. They heard the good news. Now, ultimately, our hearts would long to define success as they believed, they came to faith. But true success in our role in advancing the kingdom as witnesses is that we simply take the stand and witness. And people hear. And as we saw in the equip hour from 1 Corinthians Some will plant the seed, some will water the seed, but it's God that gives the increase. The coming to faith in Jesus is God's business. Ours is making Christ known. Boldness in the face of unbelief. All the residents heard the word of the Lord. Here's what we learn, that the name of Jesus is greater than any stubborn rebellion. The name of Jesus is greater than any stubborn rebellion. We know this from working backwards. Philippians 2. God has highly exalted Jesus and given him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Working backwards from that, knowing that every stubborn unbeliever will one day kneel before Jesus and proclaim him as Lord, we can understand how it works out in our text too, that even in the face of stubborn unbelief, Jesus is still Lord, and he's greater than that unbelief. No sinner will ever thwart God's plan or desire. This is our danger and sometimes pitting man's will against God. It paints this picture of a God in heaven who's going to be sorry for all eternity that there weren't more people in heaven. So God's not greater than unbelief. He's frustrated because he's knocking at the door and nobody's answering. He's peddling his goods and nobody's buying. That's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is God is greater even than the greatest of stubborn unbelief. God's greater. And this is hope for us as we seek to advance the kingdom. Now in verses 11 to 16, we encounter both the miraculous and a little bit of the humorous, both of which make our third point. The name of Jesus is the power for healing It's the power for healing as a picture of salvation. Verses 11 and 12 
we have this description, extraordinary miracles. Now, in our minds, that seems to be redundant, right? Isn't a miracle by definition something that's extraordinary? Kind of defies the normal working of the laws of science or nature, and God intervenes in a special, powerful way. That's really emphasized here. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin are carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, or evil spirits came out of them. It's almost like a combination of other extraordinary miracles. A woman simply touching the hem of Jesus' garment and being healed without him even doing anything. Or in Acts chapter 4, Peter walking by and his shadow passed over some people and they were healed. It sounds kind of mind-boggling, but really what happened shouldn't occupy so much of our time. Miracles are miracles. We see by faith that God can do anything he wants, so We shouldn't wring our hands too long about, I don't know how that happened, or that seems a bit extreme or crazy or hard to believe. The what isn't the big question. The question that we should be asking is, why? Why does God do these miracles? Why did God allow a a handkerchief from the apostle to touch someone and heal them of their diseases or to force out evil spirits? And the answer fits with the theme of our whole study in Acts, the advance of the kingdom. God is making himself known in full displays of power so that when the apostles stand and teach the good news that Jesus saves sinners, everyone would say, well, I guess so. If he can do that, if he can heal that lame man and make him leap around the temple mount, then I guess maybe he can. Heal broken souls. That was the miraculous. The healing as a picture of Jesus' power to restore both body and soul. Now for the humorous. The seven sons of Sceva decide to try doing what Paul was doing. They're called these traveling itinerant exorcists. So they're going around basically making their living off of kind of an appeal to the supernatural and their ability to control it. They see what Paul was doing or what was happening by Paul's handkerchief and they're thinking, wow, we're going to use his mantra. We're going to use his magic word. We're going to use his abracadabra. So they decide to try to use the name of Jesus but they don't even use it well. You can tell by the language, it's impersonal, it's out of touch, it's not their normal mode of operation. And so they say to the evil spirit, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Kind of just link onto that train, right? The spirit answers, and I'm glad it's recorded for us. Jesus, I know. We know that from the study of the Gospels. The evil spirits always recognized the lordship of Jesus Christ. They knew who he was. Sometimes he tried to silence them, but they knew. Uh, the, The powers of darkness tremble at the mighty fortress who is our God. Hallelujah. Jesus, I know. 
And Paul, I recognize. We don't like him. We know who he is. He's been assaulting our, our ground. He's been taking our strongholds. We know who he is. And by implication, we know how he operates. We know he's connected to that Jesus we know so well. So Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And, and we don't get any more narrative on the dialogue. Things get a little chaotic from this point on. And this man, it says, leaped on them. It's the same root from Acts chapter 3 when the lame man was healed and he went walking and leaping and praising the Lord. It's this spring-loaded launch. And so it is this, this man with this evil spirit leaps on them and he masters them all, which means he whooped up on them, we would say. Now remember, this is, this is well within the realm of reality of spiritual darkness. There's that maniac of Gadara across the Sea of Galilee that Jesus healed cast out his demons, and and it says they would even chain him with chains and he could break them apart. Literally supernatural strength. Nobody could contain him. So it's no surprise that seven men are no match for this one man under this power of darkness. He masters them all. He overpowers them. They flee out of the house naked and wounded. Beat up and without their impressive robes as traveling kind of salesmen. Humiliated and greatly warned about the effort to manipulate the name of Jesus for some kind of personal gain. They had abused the name of Jesus that was being presented as the power of for healing as a picture of the salvation that is offered in Jesus. What we see here is that the unbeliever is unequipped. They're incapable of fixing their own brokenness and ruin. These seven pretenders had no ability to remedy this man's demon possession. They couldn't fix that. There's no power to fix sin and its ruin. But the name of Jesus is greater than the brokenness of sin. Paul's ministry was making this known. The name of Jesus that he proclaimed, that he represented, that name was greater than any brokenness of sin, whether that was a manifestation in blindness, whether that was a manifestation in crippledness, whether that was a manifestation of uh, demon oppression. Paul knew who Jesus was. So when he was proclaiming Jesus as truly Lord, then in that name of Jesus, creator, sustainer, rescuer, restorer, Lord of all, that name had power. And it was a power that is greater than any brokenness of sin. We see that brokenness all around us, but we must not lose hope that the name of Jesus is greater, that it can restore 
that which has been broken. It can restore that which the locusts have eaten. Jesus' name has power. And so the most lost person you know whose life is just wrecked by sin is not greater than the power of Jesus to heal. Well, in response to this thrashing of the exorcists, Christians get serious about how they should view God's power. You see, in Ephesus, there was an infatuation with magic. You can read history and the Bible, and we find that they were, they were enthralled with mystical, magical kind of themes. Apparently, even some believers still saw value in it. Because once this whole display of power, the, the inability of the seven exorcists and the power of Jesus' name rightly used, verse 17 tells us, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. So a lot of, a lot of these who are believers were confessing and revealing that they, they kind of found maybe there was some value or power to their incantations or their certain superstitions. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Massive amount of money. But these believers saw the folly of trying to manipulate the power of Jesus or trying to add to it. Yes, the name of Jesus has power, but we also have this book of incantations. We have these superstitions so we can trust God and make sure we keep all the superstitions straight. And it came to the point of, no, we, have, we need to live holy before our God, recognizing he alone has the power to make us righteous. He alone has the power to control our days. We don't need any other power to assist or facilitate his plan. The name of Jesus, number four, is the power for holiness in response to Christ's value. The name of Jesus is the power of holiness in response to Christ's value. And so with the massive bonfire, the flame and the smoke, they declared that the name of Jesus is greater than our sinful habits. Christian, this week your battle against temptation will be greatly helped when you recognize that you march under that banner of the Lord Jesus. The righteous one, the Old Testament calls him. The one who is called in Romans the righteousness of God. The one who imputes to us his righteousness. When we understand our calling to be righteous as he is righteous and the power of the Spirit in us that enables that righteous living, 
we will be done with these sinful habits and additions to the Christian life. We'll find ourselves confessing and divulging and getting rid of the stuff that doesn't fit with the righteousness of Christ. The name of Jesus is greater than our sinful habits. For some here today, that may be good news because you've tried to be done with certain things and it's not happening easily. Well, come back to the beginning. Come back to the author and finisher of our faith and see that the race has been run. The course is laid out. Righteousness has been accomplished. For others, it's just that hope. You may not be living with a besetting sin, but maybe this past week there was some sin, and we're reminded every week as we gather and work through our liturgy that we can confess our sin, and he is faithful and just to forgive our sin. How can God forgive our sin? He can do so because he's faithful to his promise, and he is just. Christ has paid for that sin and has given us his righteousness. There is a legal obligation, and God is obligated by his own character to forgive our sin when we confess, when we divulge, when we forsake. And so take heart. The name of Jesus is greater than even our sinful struggles. Well, then we come to the the rest of our text, this story that unfolds in Ephesus. Let me begin reading verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. A riot breaks out because conversion is encroaching on the bottom line of these profiteers. Ephesus is the home of this massive temple to Artemis. That's the Greek name. You might have heard of the temple of Diana. That's the Roman name for the same goddess. This massive temple is four times the size of the Parthenon. That kind of gets all the, the attention of history because it's somewhat still standing. Whereas this temple to Diana or Artemis was destroyed. But it, it's, its measurements are similar to Arrowhead Stadium. A massive Massive temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Well, 
many made their living in the making of idols, models of the great goddess. They're upset because they're losing customers and they stir up yet another riot. God in his sovereignty is going to raise up a political ruler. We know nothing of him. We can't speak to his faith, but we can speak to his heart being in the Lord's hands and like a river of water being directed wherever God wants it. As the riot breaks out, it's interesting to note in verse 32, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. It's not unlike modern causes and riots that we see in our day, marked by confusion, chaos, no real moral rudder, no compass of justice truly to speak of. Verse 34 tells us that for two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Verse 35, a town clerk. Now that sounds less significant. We should think almost more of a a mayor, someone who's really in charge of things. Quieted the crowd, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis, of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? That's part of the legend of how they first even encountered this goddess. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Here this man stands up and appeals to law and order. They're under the rule of Rome, remember, so if Rome has to send in troops, things get really bad for the occupied city. They would much rather voluntarily agree to Roman's rule and the establishment of peace. And so he appeals to a common sense justice or rightness and disperses this crowd. But I think we should see in this, perhaps even through inaccuracies, because this town clerk stands up and says, these men wouldn't blaspheme our goddess. Well, when I read that, I thought it's probably a good thing Paul was held out by some of his friends because I think he would have gladly stepped into the arena and made light of their so-called God. Um, Remember, their big beef was back there in verse 26. He was saying that gods that are made with hands are not gods because Paul would have taught them what Isaiah the prophet said in chapter 44, I believe, where A man will cut down a tree and he'll use half of the tree to make firewood and cook his food and he'll use the other half of the tree to carve a god and then think that that god actually has some kind of power or authority. It's complete foolishness for the greater to make the lesser and then make the lesser the greater. Paul would have stood up and blasphemed Artemis. He just didn't have the opportunity. So I don't even think the town clerk was totally accurate 
But he was right in appealing to what was the law of the land and what was right and orderly. What we see here is that the name of Jesus is the power for protection in the midst of opposition. God, in his sovereign control, raises up a town clerk to disperse an angry mob. In this case, we know from other places in Acts that the angry mob had their way, dragged Paul out of the city, and stoned him. And this is why we need a strong faith to rest ourselves in the sovereignty of God to do whatever is best for his glory, for the advance of his kingdom, and for the good of his people. Because if we only evaluate our definition of what's good for me, then we must have a God that will always deliver us from the riot. We must have Acts 19 and not have the previous chapters where we find Paul under a pile of stones we come back to the banner waving over our heads. The name of Jesus is the name that we advance, whether that be in our living or in our dying. The name of Jesus is greater than every threat we face. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But it really doesn't matter how loud they yelled or for how long. Their cry was and will always be met with, greater is the Lord of heaven. Our culture is crying, great is this cause, and great is this, and great is this. And we simply meet every cry of greatness with, but greater is the God of heaven. And we advance the truth of the kingdom. Our God is greater greater than the God of this world and all those who are exercising his will, blinded by the God of this world. Our God is greater. And we're told that in a way that is supposed to encourage us here in Acts 19 and there in 1 John 4. Take heart. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so as we sang last week, let every family and every tribe on this terrestrial ball bring forth that royal crown and bow before the Lord of all. Is Jesus your Lord? The response to this text is believe on Jesus as Lord, Savior of sinners, rescuer of the ruined, and then having believed in him, take up that banner. Like we would picture in those Civil War soldiers, taking up that flag and advancing it for the cause. That's what we're doing as we leave here. We might take a detour for lunch and a good night's sleep, and then it's off into that battleground where we advance the name of our God. And we do it with power, the power of the name of Jesus. Heavenly Father, strengthen our hearts this morning by a power not our own. May we go from this place ready to stand and to be strong, but in the power of your might, 
the power of your name. Lord, your name is greater than our imperfect faith. It's greater than any stubborn rebellion. It's greater than the brokenness of sin, greater than our sinful habits, and greater than any and every threat we might face on our pilgrim journey. So we leave here bolstered and ready if we leave here believing the words that you have spoken to us. Those who know your name put their trust in you. So may we rest in Jesus' name. May we press on in Jesus' name. May we share the good news in Jesus' name. And may we overcome and endure to the end in Jesus' name. Amen.